Welcome to Gay Mystery Podcast, featuring interviews with renowned LGBTQ authors and up-and-coming talent of mystery, suspense, and thriller novels. I'm your host, Brad Shreve, and Justine Adamick is here with her weekly recommendation. My guest this week is Ellen Hart, but before we get to the interview, as always, we're going to start with Justine. Hi, Justine. Hi, Brad. How are you? I'm doing great this week. Wonderful. How about yourself? Yeah, it's it's been a good week around here, too. It's been a great week. So let me tell you what I have this week. I have got one of the great gay mystery and probably the gay mystery, which which started it at all and, and has inspired a lot of the writers that have uh, come after it. And it's Fade Out by Joseph Hansen. Oh, you went deep into the vault and got one of the greatest. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, I'd read it a long time ago and I I picked it up about the time I started reading gay mysteries. And then I expanded out and I've read a lot of gay mysteries since then. And I went back and, you know, reread it to prepare for this recommendation. And it was as good as the first time. It is the top at the top of the art. Uh, it's getting a glowing recommendation from me because it is so well written and it is so well crafted. First came out in 1970. And David Branstetter was the private investigator. Uh, that was, you know, the first private investigator. He was not what was typical of, of gays at the t- in literature at the time. All of the gay characters up till then were mostly flamboyant. And he was just a, a regular guy who was gay. And, but his partner was flamboyant. Um, and his partner had flamboyant friends. And Grand Sir talks about how it was difficult to be around them, but he loved, but he loved this guy. And the book starts with Branstetter getting over the death of his young lover uh, from stomach cancer. This was, you know, ten years before anybody even thought of AIDS. It was interesting to see, you know, he started talking about the wasting away of the disease and and realizing, wait, how could that be? And it was stomach cancer. So a lot of it is similar to what happened 20, 25 years later. But it's interesting because to most people in the book, he passes as straight, but uh, the other characters he comes across who happen to be gay spot him immediately and, and call him call him out on it like yo you're gay and he says yeah i'm gay so that was it was interesting i wonder how you know the, the story doesn't really delve into much of how how he, he would come across that they would spot it well that seems to me if, if i recall correctly it's been a while since i read it and i did love it it wasn't like it was a big deal he just was a right. detective that happened to be gay it wasn't right it wasn't like the focus of the book in any way Right, but he was getting over the death of his lover. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was it was probably hard for him to be in a society where he could not share that grief with very many other people. Yeah. So he he works as an insurance investigator for his father. He has worked this way for 22 years by the time we meet him. He had taken a couple months off right after Rod's death, but now he's getting out and trying to get, doing his first investigation, trying to get back into the world of the living. 
and he's investigating a, a death in the San Joaquin Valley. Guy has his car has driven off, has you know run off the road in a rainstorm into a rushing river. The car is found after after the storm passes and the river goes down a bit. The car is found, but his body is never found. And before the insurance company pays out one hundred and fifty thousand. They want to know did this guy disappear and fake his own death. So they, uh, they, he goes out there and to investigate it, and he ends up with quite the intriguing mystery. Everybody's a suspect, and no one's you're not you're not really sure what happened until he puts the pieces together at the very end. You can see how where all the pieces were there. Every character seems to play a role. They're not all in on the murder, obviously, but they all fit together to come up with this ending which you know works out very smoothly you know it's very complicated as you're going through and and then at the end it was all very simple and if and telling you that telling you it as a simple solution will not lead you to this you know while you're walking through the complicated things you say well maybe that's a simple solution or maybe this is a simple solution Um, they all look equally possible which is how i imagine a lot of investigations go I didn't figure it out. <laughs> I did not figure it out either. Although I, I am, I am uh, renowned for trying not to figure out the mystery. Uh, this one, though, you know, I even reading it through the second time, I wasn't sure that I I gotten all the pieces right. So these books were a few years ago picked up by University of Wisconsin Press and put out on Kindle. And, you know, you and I have talked about this over the past year or so. Only the first two books are out there on Kindle still. And, you know, you, you would say, well, and I don't know, why aren't they available on Kindle? And I said, well, I've got all on my Kindle. They must be available. Nope. Uh, everything after the second book is pulled off the market. And at Recruit Tales, we we talk about this as the one who got away. We were hoping that there was an opportunity there for us to bring him back. But another press has snatched him up, and they intend to bring them back as Kindle book. You know, and, and Fade Out is really the one that started it all. Pick that one up on Kindle or you know, the first two. You can probably wait for the others to come out on Kindle. But they're still out there in paperback, and they're all very good. You know, Requeer Tales puts out a bibliography by my partner, Matt Lovers Moore, called Murder and Mayhem. And in it, there are 3,300 entries. And there are a lot of entries for Joseph Hansen. And you can see as he's publishing the books, as it gets later, he's switching publishers. And he's, he's you know, going through a couple of the big name publishers every now and then. There's an indie publisher. And at the beginning of the University of Wisconsin Press books, there is a forward uh, that he wrote himself right before he died, uh, a very lengthy forward talking about his journey and his ability to get noticed and published as a gay man uh, who was married to a lesbian woman and publishing a book about gay character. It is in and of itself a fascinating read. You give it a glowing recommendation. I'm going to tell anybody if you read any queer fiction at all, queer mysteries, if you haven't read this, you're missing out. You need to read it. It's timeless. It's really timeless. It's up there with, you know, like the Perry Mason and Agatha Christie mysteries. It it works as well now as it did then. Well, thank you, Justine. 
Thank you, Brad. If you enjoy Gay Mystery Podcast, let others know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. Often called the LGBTQ's answer to Agatha Christie, my guest, Ellen Hart, is the author of 35 crime novels in two different series. She is a six-time winner of the Lambda Literary Award for Best Lesbian Mystery, a four-time winner of the Minnesota Book Award for Best Popular Fiction, a three-time winner of the Golden Crown Literary Award, a recipient of the Alice B. Medal, and was made a laureate of the Saint and Sinners Literary Festival in New Orleans in 2005. In 2017, she became the first openly LGBTQ author to be named a Grand Master by Mystery Writers of America. Ellen lives in Minnesota with her partner of 42 years. It's a pleasure to have you on, Ellen. Oh, I'm delighted to be with you. I'd like to begin by discussing your Grand Master Award by Mystery Writers of America. Oh, sure. Now, that's an award that represents the pinnacle of achievement in Mr. Writing, and you're in good company. Other recipients have included Agatha Christie, Stephen King, Alfred Hitchcock, Ellery Queen, Evelyn Maugh, Elmer Moore, and Sue Grafton. Where were you when you discovered you had, you had achieved the award? Um, well, I think I just walked into my bedroom to sit down, and, and I don't remember what I was going to do, and I, I got a phone call from a woman I knew, another mystery writer, and she said, are you sitting down? And I said, I mean, that, that's, that is a real, that's an interesting way to open a conversation. Yes. Um, yeah, so I said, yeah, I, that I was. And she said, well, I want to tell you that uh, Mystery Writers of America wants to present you with a 2017 Grandmaster Award. They want to name you that. And I don't remember what I said. <laughs> I mean, I was just stunned. Entirely well, I, was gonna, stunned. I was going to ask you to share what that experience was like when you when you found out. Well, I I think what I did was I said, "Do you have the right heart?" Um, <laughs> <laughs> I had uh, you know many many times looked at the the list of uh, people who had won the award and you know in awe people that I consider the greats and um, people that I used to read to teach me how to write. Um, and I, never in my wildest dreams did it occur to me that I would ever be on that list. Seriously. So, yeah, it was it was a very big deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, you're one. You're the, obviously the reason why writers should keep read, read, reading. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You never. The thing about a writing career is you never know where it's going to lead. The Loft Literary Center in Minneapolis. It's one of the largest independent writing community in the nation. Or it is the largest. Yeah, I believe it is, yeah. Uh, you taught creative writing there for 16 years. Can you give us details about the center? You know, how do I say? The loft was started in the, I'll probably get this wrong, but I'm thinking it was the 80s, um, late 70s, early 80s, by a bunch of ex-hippies. I mean, it was it was a collective, and it was... Uh, a way to keep writing alive in Minnesota. It was a way to showcase the wonderful writers we have in Minnesota and offer students teaching from people who had actually been been published, which I think is uh, 
it adds a dimension to the to teaching that sometimes you don't get from uh, other teachers. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a a wonderful space. It started out, um, I believe, above a bookstore over at the University of Minnesota, and now it has its own very cool. Um, it's a, it's in this really old cool building, and they restored it, and it's it's a wonderful space. It has space for teaching. It has space for various events it has you know they they hold all kinds of seminars there and um when people have a book come out you can do a reading there i mean it's it's just a wonderful space if somebody's interested is there a selection process no no not really just you know sign up and pay for it wonderful out of the 35 crime novels you've written 27 of those have been in the jane lawless mystery series that's right, right yeah. T- tell us about Jane. Who is she? Well, initially she was somebody that I needed for a book that I wanted to write. I think for many years I was the person who always wanted to write a novel, but you know, never actually sat down and, and put pen to paper. I got an idea in about 1980, gosh, six or seven, and thought I'd like to write a mystery. The reason I wanted to write a mystery is because, uh, actually three things. A woman in town who was a poet had written a mystery, and it got a lot of uh, play around town and around the country, actually. I read it, and I thought it was absolutely wonderful. I'd always read mysteries, loved mysteries, and I was just blown away by this book. Uh, At the same time, someone sent me a copy of Murder in the Collective by Barbara Wilson. She um, was at the time an owner of Seal Press, which was one of the small independent feminist presses at the time. Uh, and she wrote mysteries. And this was her first mystery. And I, again, was mildly impressed by it. I think what it did was essentially give me the permission not to write myself and my life out of the novel that I would uh, then write. The, the third thing that happened was I started reading the novels of P.D. James. I don't know if you know who she is. She's a, uh, a, an English writer. Yes. And I just loved her books. Um, at the time, some of, some of her um, stories had been turned into a series on PBS. And I remember listening to it. And after each episode, they would interview her for a few minutes. And they'd ask her these questions that I thought were, were really wonderful, but elicited some fascinating responses. And one of the responses that I liked the most was she, she said, you know, I wanted to write a mystery because I thought it would teach me how to construct a novel. And then I would move on to the real thing by which she meant literary fiction. But she said, you know, I learned right away that there was nothing that I wanted to write about that I couldn't write about within the context of a mystery. And beyond that, she liked the, sense that mysteries were set squarely in the moral universe. And that really appealed to me. And I, uh, that, those three things were kind of what steered me ultimately towards a mystery novel. And so when I, when I began thinking about it, I had this idea. I needed an alum of a sorority at the University of Minnesota, and that became Jane Lawless. And uh, tell us about Jane. What type of person is she? Jane is, um, a, she owns a restaurant on Lake Harriet, uh, which is a, one of the three main lakes in Minneapolis. She's a restaurateur. I mean, I gave her the restaurant I'd like, but I, I used, I, I spent most of my life as a, as a chef. And, but I, you know, so I wanted to give her that background because I understood it. She's kind of an introvert. 
she's more cerebral than, so she's really good at thinking and figuring out mysteries, the crimes and the novels. She's been, for me, kind of a a hard nut to crack in that she wasn't completely available to me when I started writing her. I didn't, I didn't entirely understand her. And I mean, that's, that is a hard thing to do when you don't, you know, you haven't sort of gone from the top floor to the basement with your character. It's, it's a little harder to write that character, but she opened up to me over a period of time. She still remains kind of a cipher in some ways to me. And I think that's one of the reasons she still fascinates me um, because I don't understand her completely. She is like me in many ways, but She's unlike me in other important ways. For instance, um, she has a lot more courage than I do. She does things that I wouldn't even consider doing because I would find them way too scary, but she's able to, to do those things. And, you know, I mean, when I started the books, we were pretty much the same age. Um, she's 51 in the newest book. I just turned 71, so she's aged far better than I have. <laughs> and, um, you know, she's, um, she, she's sort of one half of a, of a duo, and I think that's a uh, fairly it, – it is definitely a uh, mystery trope that's used quite often. She has a very dear friend who does a lot of the sleuthing with her, and that friend is very quick. I mean, you get her, the name of her friend is Cordelia Thorne and Cordelia is a, she's in the theater. She's been in the theater for her whole life. I mean, she, she studied at the university of Minnesota. She is, uh, has started her own theater in Minneapolis um, after years and years of working in a theater in St. Paul. You, you don't get much time with her. She forms opinions quickly. She goes by her instincts, whereas Jane is kind of the exact opposite. She, she has to think things through very carefully, and um, they make kind of a good tag team. Unlike many mysteries, time has evolved in, in Jane's life. Yes. How has she evolved over that time? Well, she's had a number of girlfriends, I guess. Um, she's gotten older. She's been through a lot of issues with her restaurant, with her life, with her brother, with her father. I mean, she has a she has a full life, uh, and I've given her. I've been very careful to give her that. And I think she's she's developed. She's become, I believe, more visible to the readership, my readership. But she still remains essentially kind of a mystery to me. Ask me something more specific, and maybe I can answer that. That I think you answered it very well. Just okay. Okay. Because so many are just stagnant for many, many years in, in some mysteries. And, and I'm asking. Yeah, well, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I mean, it was Nero Wolf, um, the old Nero Wolf, um, which were very, very popular for a long, long time. Uh, Nero Wolf um, stayed in an apartment in New York City, and the city aged around him, but he never aged. Uh, time within a long-running series does get a little bit wonky. And it, it has, uh, in my series, when I when it started out, I think Jane and Cordelia were, you know, children of the 60s. Well, they can't be that anymore and be the age they're at. So, you know, it <laughs> it gets to be you know, a, little, a little problematic. But, you know, you hope your, your readership will suspend their disbelief long enough to just get, fall into the story. 
Well, regarding your readers, do you believe there are risks that you're taking when you have your characters evolve? Yeah, you know, I think particularly in, in genre fiction, I think we revisit the worlds we like, the mystery novels that we like or the romance novels that we like, um, because we like the world that the author has created. And if you mess too much with that world, I think you do lose readers. Uh, so I, th- I think it's it's a balancing act. You have to make sure that that the the character is plausible. I mean, back in back in the um, golden age of mystery writing, characters didn't evolve. Agatha Christie types of uh, characters, you know, Poirot and uh, Miss Marple, they didn't evolve. N- neither did Sam Spade or uh, none of the hard boiled mystery novels. You you knew very little about them. You knew, for instance, Sam Spade, you might know if he liked blondes or brunettes, you knew what kind of alcohol he liked, you knew where he kept the gun in his office, that sort of thing. But he did not evolve. Um, That's one of the things that has happened in modern mystery fiction, is that we expect these characters to do some evolving, and we expect them to have full lives. I would have been very happy to have written the kind of mystery where I didn't have to involve Jane in in her personal life, and she could have just, you know, gone into the mysteries, solved the mysteries, and walked off the page. But you can't do that anymore because I think character is so important now in mystery fiction that the characters have to feel real, and to feel real, they have to have their personal lives. Now, I don't think those personal lives can take over the story, and I it, just my feeling about the way I create a mystery is that if that part of the character's personal life doesn't have any bearing on the story in the book, then you really can't, you know, get too far into it, which is why I've, Jane has had as many girlfriends as she's had, because <laughs> they lead her into a mystery or they become part and parcel with the mystery. Yeah, I had mentioned to uh, my interview, David Lennon, uh, last week, that I found an old book or, or section that said, these are the rules to write a mystery. And, and one of the rules was, don't get into your character's life. People don't care. They only care about the mystery. And that's so not okay. true today. It's very not true today. But then, you know, you, you should always beware of writers bearing tips. So anything I say, um, please Take with a grain of salt, <laughs> because you can always break rules, you know. Absolutely. It's time to promote your uh, your current novel, In in a Midnight Wood, and it's currently available on pre-order, and when this show airs, it will be available to release one week from today. Would you share that story? Um, well, in, you know, Jane, when I started writing the Jane Wallace books, they were essentially Agatha Christie kinds of novels. They were um, set in insular settings. They, you know, no, no particular sex and violence. And, and you know, they, they, they followed that pattern fairly clearly. Over the years, I think they've gotten a bit darker. They've gotten um, a bit more textured, a little more complex than where I started out. And Jane has evolved to the extent that early on, she was just an amateur sleuth. Later in the books, she becomes an actual PI. She she meets a man who is a homicide investigator uh, with the Minneapolis police, and she works with him a while. And he encourages her to 
Uh, he thinks she has really good instincts and really good abilities, and he encourages her to get her PI license, which she does. So towards the latter part of the book, she actually has her restaurant, but she does a little PI work on the side. In this book, she's taken on a new role, and and it's partly because of my interest in uh, true crime podcasts. I love them. And so she has become someone who does research for a local uh, true crime podcast in Minneapolis. She is invited up to a, a small town in Minnesota, northern Minnesota, and she and her friend Cordelia drive up. They're staying with an old friend, actually somebody that Jane has known for many years, somebody that she babysat when um, she was in high school and the, this woman was um, far younger. And Jane, they go to stay with her. Because Jane has known her for many years, uh, I should say that they're in town because of, a, of an arts festival. Cordelia is going to speak and, and Jane is, is also involved in that. She has known that this young woman, many years ago, her... The, the boyfriend that she had in high school went missing before the beginning of their senior year, and he never reappeared. No one knew where he went or if he even if he was alive. Um, there was some talk around town that he and his father were on bad terms and that his father might have actually murdered him. So at the beginning of this book, I'm not giving anything away because it happens in the first chapter, a body is discovered under a coffin, I should say bones, are discovered under a coffin in this small town, and it becomes apparent rather quickly that the bones belong to this young man who'd gone missing 20 years before. And so Jane is there, realizes that, yes, indeed, this is a cold case. She calls her producer and says, can I check into this? The producer says, oh, absolutely, and we're off and running in the book. You don't find, generally find bones under a coffin. No, you not don't. Where they're supposed to be. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> now it's time for awkward questions that authors get. Uh oh. And what I'll do is I'll spin a wheel and ask you a question. And these are questions that are sometimes uh, hard for us to answer or take us aback. Sometimes they're rude. And uh, we'll see what you get. Okay. So hang on while I spin the wheel. Do you actually have a wheel? Of course. <laughs> Because here it goes. Okay. Okay, you're lucky you didn't have, a, you don't have a rude one, but you have one of those that we get a lot that's sometimes really hard to answer. Who do you base your characters after? Oh, boy. Well, you know, my main character, Jane, is based to some extent on me, but to some extent, at least initially, on the needs of the story that I wanted to tell. Um, the character of Cordelia is based on my best friend. And it's very funny because years ago when I would do, uh, you know, a, a signing in Minneapolis and she would show up, I would see heads turn and look at her and it was like, yep, that's Cordelia. <laughs> she's, you know, she's not entirely, Cordelia is not, the totality of my best friend. She is someone different, but she is, again, a lot of like, uh, very much like this, this friend of mine. Um, so the two main characters, you know, that's how that works. In, in terms of other characters, main characters in my books, I have always felt that writers are kind of like cosmic vacuum cleaners. 
and what I mean by that is there if you if you know a writer and you think that writer is watching you, they are. They they are always looking around, sniffing around, trying to find things that they can use for a book. It might be a motivation, it might be uh, a personality trait, it might be um, an expression, it can be any, any number of things. Uh, but you know, it, it, you pick the, the you pick what you need for the character that you're creating, and you assemble. I suppose you could say a bit of a Frankenstein character. But when that character starts walking and talking, at least for me, when I hear their voice, they become very real. I I say, well, if you took my husband and a woman that I saw at Starbucks and a man that I saw on the bus exactly. and mix them all together, you may get the character. Yep. You know, you never know. Yep, yep. You're always looking around, I think, around for a, an amalgam that works for the story that you're telling. And as as I understand, there are no explicit sex scenes in your novels? No. Do you believe there's an expectation of sex by many readers? Um, I think it, well, you mean, are we talking gain, GLBTQ community or the larger community? Um, let's stick with the uh, GLBTQ. Yes, in that community, there may be. I... You know, I didn't come to my writing, by and large, through LBGTQ writing. And so what I was, I think, at least in my mind, basing it on, at, as I mentioned, was the Agatha Christie kind of of mystery. Um, and you don't find that in, in those mysteries. A traditional mystery was what I was writing. And I wanted to stay true to that tradition. I mean, you know, we don't see Miss Marple in the bushes with her knickers down. We just don't. That would be very <laughs> jarring. And so wanting to stick with that, that's where I was. I hadn't done a lot of reading within, um, you know, lesbian mysteries or and or um, lesbian fiction at the time. And at the time, I don't think lesbian romances certainly were not as big as they are now. Uh, I think a lot of readers come to lesbian mystery fiction. Let's just let's just say that um, today with that expectation, and I and if they've read a lot of mysteries, that is an expectation. You know, as in other mystery novels, that's what you that is that is in, in thoroughly um, part of that specific uh, subgenre. Hard-boiled novels, you will find uh, sex scenes. You'll also find uh, lots of violence. Um, in my novels, one of the tropes of a traditional novel is that on the page, you don't have a lot of uh, physical violence. So I don't write that either. I've always thought, you know, maximal suspense, minimal gore. That's, that is the tra traditional mysteries. mystery. You know, if, if they come to a traditional mystery thinking that that's what they're going to get, they will be disappointed. Uh, I don't write that. I have never wanted to write that. For me, it would get in the way of telling the story. And I think you will find that, I mean, some of the writers that I admire, even within the hard-boiled genre, don't write explicit sex scenes. I think if you need that, then find it somewhere else. You're not going to find it in my books. I have nothing against that. But it doesn't fit, as I said, within the context of the type of mystery that I read, that I write. That's kind of a cliche. 
I uh, it doesn't bother me either, but I want it to move the story forward. So sure. if it helps the story, great. But if, if it doesn't, why have it? Is my feeling. Well, I mean, I I remember reading a mystery, a lesbian mystery, where you know we were we were on the hunt for, and we we just found something major out, and I was waiting, you know, for the character to pursue that, but instead she finds she nails some woman in the back of a of a like McDonald's and they do it on a flower sack or something. And then she moves on. <laughs> I didn't need that. You know, that did feel gratuitous <laughs> and unnecessary to yeah. me. And maybe it's my age. I don't know, but it depends upon the kind of book you're writing. And that's just never been the kind of book I wanted to write. Yeah, I agree with you. It works. It works for some, but uh, not others. Right. Now, the number of accolades you've received, it's impressive. Uh, in addition to the Grandmaster Award from Misty Writers of America, you've also earned the Minnesota Book Award for Best Popular Fiction. You're a three-time winner of the Golden Crown Literary Award. And as I said, you were made a liter laureate at the Saint and Sinners Literary Festival in 2005. And there's many more. Yeah, there are a lot more. Despite, <laughs> well, obviously, it's not a weird thing to many others. Now, despite all that, what obstacles have you faced writing stories with lesbian protagonists? Oh, well, let's let's just take, for instance, the um, the Grandmaster. I don't think there's probably ever been a Grandmaster in the history of Grandmaster Awards that has earned as little money as I have. <laughs> um, and the reason is the kind of book I write. I knew that that my re my readership would be limited uh, because of what I wrote. I always just assumed that if someone wasn't, you know, homophobic, if they liked the kind of story that I wrote, that they could enjoy my books. Um, that isn't the case. Um, there's, I think there's still a lot of homophobia out there. And I think it's limited my career. It certainly limited my sales and my ability to make money. But Again, that's what I wanted to do, and I've never, I've never regretted it. I've never looked back and thought, no, 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 I shouldn't do that, you know. So I, you know, I just kept digging the hole, <laughs> it's just, which is the, you know, the definition of insanity, and because it was what I wanted to do, and I was lucky enough to make enough money along with teaching, etc., that I could make a career out of it. There was a period of time in New York in the early 90s when they looked at what was happening with small presses in the United States, a small feminist uh, or lesbian presses and gay presses. Michael Nava comes to mind. And, um, it, you know, where they thought, oh, gosh, this is the new flavor of the month. Let's grab some of them and, and put them in in for Michael and I and Sandra Scapitone and a number of other people. Let's put them in the mass market paperback. So they did that. And we lasted, you know, a few years, and then we were all dropped. I wasn't. That's that's a mystery to me. I don't know why I wasn't dropped. When really, really fine writers were, I somehow managed to hang on and write a book a year, or sometimes more than a book a year, um, for over 30 years. So the, the sustaining, I think, of that career has been part of the magic bullet I I still to this day don't quite understand. I mean, I know I tried to do everything right. I tried to do, in terms of being professional, I turned books in on time. I was easy to work with. I did everything I could, A to Z, to promote my books all over the country. 
on my dime, pretty much. I, I did what I could, and I and I think I was an easy author to work with, and I apparently have had enough success. Uh, I don't know that awards mean a whole lot to the general readership, but they do tend to energize your press. And so I was continually winning these awards. You know, they would look at that, and I, you know, I was apparently selling enough that they would they would consider giving me another contract. I've spent 30 some years thinking I was going to be dropped <laughs> by my friends. <laughs> and that's, that's true. I mean, very, very fine writers that I know were, I don't get it, but I'm, I'm grateful. Yeah. I'm very grateful. Well, you've written eight novels in your Sophie Greenway series. Yes. How does that series differ from Jane Lawless? Well, the main character is is not a lesbian. I, I, if this is interesting to you, this is kind of a story that I I always tell. I always used to tell my writing classes because I think it's very instructive. I think I think in some ways you learn more by your mistakes than you do by what you do right. Because sometimes when you do something right, you don't always know what you've done. You do know exactly what you've done when you've made a mistake. I wrote my first book, Hallowed Murder, and I had a couple presses that wanted to publish it, and I went with Seal Press. And then they said to me, well, are you going to write another book? And I was so young, and so, I, and it was like, oh, another book? Yeah, I'll write another book. So I set about writing another book, and I sent it in, and they sent it back, and they said, nope, change this, change that. This is just not, they didn't like it at all. So I put it on the shelf, and I I thought, and I wrote for another two-year period, trying to, to write a book that I thought they'd like, and I sent it to them. And they sent that book back, and they said, no, 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 this isn't what we want. So, all right. Uh, you know, I was really flummoxed. I didn't understand what was going on. So I, I thought long and hard. The first book I sent on Hallowed Murder was as perfect as I could possibly make it. It had been through multiple, I mean, probably half, probably 10 revisions. And I sent it off. It was a good book. The, the, one, of the, one of the people that I talked to along the way said, it's too long. Cut it by, I think they told me to cut it by something like 30,000 words. And I thought, well, I can't do that. But, you know, I started looking at the book. And I, I wanted, I really wanted to be published. And so I looked at every word, I looked at every sentence, every paragraph, and every chapter. And I got that book down to about 74,000 words, at which point I realized, I think it was 93 when I sent it off. You know, I realized that I was, if I cut it any more, that I would be cutting structure and not fat. So mm-hmm. I, and the bone, and I didn't want to cut that. So I sent it off to them. They read it. They loved it. And they published it. Okay. The next book I sent, I sent because they suggested I write another book. I wrote it. I sent it off without really internalizing the fact that editors are very busy people. They get lots of submissions. If your book isn't any good, they, they're not going to take the time to make uh, something wonderful out of the dreck you sent them. So I put that book on the shelf. The third book I sent off, which was called Vitalize, um, they, they said it's not feminist enough. It's not lesbian enough. It's not this and that. And I thought, hmm, I didn't, I didn't know that much about mystery, or I didn't know that much about 
writing, but I had read a lot of mysteries. I didn't read a mystery because it was feminist. I didn't read a mystery if it, because it had a lesbian character in it. I read a mystery because it was entertaining, because it, it provided me with an interesting read. Now, I had nothing against feminism. I am a feminist, but that isn't what I was trying to do. I had nothing against being a lesbian. I think my credentials there are pretty solid. But again, that isn't where I was going. So what I did was I took out some of the lesbian characters because they didn't work. And I took out some of the feminist stuff because it slowed the story down. In essence, what I did, I did the exact opposite of what they told me to do. And I sent them the book and they took it. And what I learned from that was you can't pander. You can't write somebody else's book. You have to write the book that is true to you. If that's not good enough to get published, so be it. But you have to write the book that's calling to you. And ever since I learned those two lessons, lessons don't turn something in before it's as perfect as you can make it. And secondly, don't turn something in because you think you know what this press wants. You have to turn it in. Turn something in that speaks to you, that bubbles up from your inner self and what you want to, essentially, you, I think we write the books we want to read. You can't pander. And after I learned those two lessons, I've been published ever since. Well, that sounds like great advice. Well, beware of writing writer's bearing tips. <laughs> that, that, that is true. But, it, you know, it, I, I believe that. So did I answer your question? The, yes, you did. Okay. <laughs> yes, you did. Well, I want to remind people your current novel is In a Midnight Wood. And where would be the best place for them to go to find it? Would it be your website? Sure. Absolutely. You can find links on my website or, um, you know, you can go anywhere you get your books online. When the book is out initially, you can find it in bookstores. Generally, you'd be able to find it in, you know, if you're still going to bookstores. But, you know, um, anywhere that you get your books, you'd be, you'd be able to find it. So, and I'll have uh, the link to your website in the show notes. Thank you. And Ellen, I want to thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, this has been great fun. Thank you. Hit the subscribe button wherever you hear our show so you don't miss a single episode. Tell a friend, too. Thank you for listening.